Today's word comes to us from Joshua, chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Well, this past weekend, as I said earlier in the announcements, is our fall retreat, fall retreat, fall revival, and we had Pastor Michael Chang come and speak to us. Now, I know many of you probably were not able to attend it due to your busy schedule, and unfortunately for you, you missed out a lot. But by God's grace, Pastor Michael Chang has agreed to stay and, and minister to us this Sunday morning and afternoon to finish off the revival and giving us today's word. So without uh, further ado, let me quickly introduce you to him. Pastor Michael Chang is senior pastor of Calvary English Chapel in Chicago, Illinois. He's been serving in that particular congregation for close to a quarter of a century, 24 years. It sounds so amazing when you put it that way, quarter of a century. But it is what it is, 24 years. And uh, he's a graduate of the University of Kansas, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He is married happily with two daughters, uh, Faith and Joy, and he has a wonderful, wonderful testimony. And uh, I hope and pray that today's word will really encourage you and edify you as we really hope to live out the theme of the revival, which is recapturing our first love. So, Pastor Michael, will you come and give us today's word? Let's give him a welcome. Uh, good morning, NCF. Um, just want to thank Pastor John and Pastor James and the deacon board uh, just welcoming me um, and, and listening to uh, teaching of God's word. But I have to clarify something of what Pastor John just stated. I have been at this particular church, the only church that I ever served as a pastor. Uh, it's been 24 years, started as a children's pastor, college pastor, and became the, uh, the EM pastor, and now senior pastor of their EM. Uh, the reason why I was able to stay in 24 years was that our, my congregation is very gracious. And so when I graduated from Trinity, they didn't have the nerves to say, all right, it's time for you to move on. And so we, I just kind of stuck around and turned out to be like 24 years. And so, so it's not me. It's just how good my congregation is and kind of dealing with me all these years. And so I began this morning's message uh, with this thought. You know, we really don't know what we really believe until our obedience may be costly to our own livelihood. We really don't know what we truly believe unless we realize the obedience to that truth may cost us even our own lives. 
Uh, we've been going through the life of Moses for the past two evenings. Moses came to a critical juncture of his life. He was placed in a palace that, um, that gave privilege and comfort and status and power. He had nothing to lose, but because of God's conviction and understanding his ethnicity, his upbringing, and God's sovereign leading, and particularly a burden in his heart, he made a choice. He relinquished all the wealth and power and chose to be mistreated with his people. And we learned that he was able to do that because it wasn't out of just his willpower. He actually considered the two options. He actually really thought it through in what was truly more valuable, the material things of this world, or to obey God's calling. We learned that although he obeyed and he followed, he led him to 40 years in the just middle life things. For 40 years in living in Median, he got married and had kids and things, and nothing until the call through the burning bush. And we learned that through that process, God was refining and teaching and equipping him even more so that the 40 years in palace and 40 years in Median would eventually lead to an experience where he would be able to confront Pharaoh and also to lead two and a half million people in the desert for 40 years. In those 80 years, God was training and equipping and showing for this one particular purpose. And my primary goal of bringing this address or this passage and sermon was to get us to view our lives under the umbrella of God's redemptive history. In other words, God has sovereignly chose you, chose you if you're redeemed in Christ, and he has led you all this way, who we are, our ethnic background, our, our experiences, even now for one particular purpose, to be involved in the advancement of God's kingdom work. We must view our lives this way. But today we read from uh, Joshua. Joshua 2 comes to a very critical juncture of his life. What are you facing this morning? What are you facing, a burden or leading of God's in our hearts that you are truly wrestling with? That obedience to that truth seems like death. It really doesn't make sense. Maybe the Spirit has been burdening in your heart about that one particular person to truly forgive because the Scripture says those who are redeemed in Christ, we are able. Maybe if many of you who have been giving to the church here and there, but the Scripture is pretty clear, everything that we have belongs to the Lord. And God says to just to acknowledge that truth, that everything is mine and I have given everything to you, Bring the tithe to me, true tithe. Maybe some of the young couples who are here, that you are on, on fire for the Lord, and God seems to be burdening your heart for overseas missions, but you have young kids, and to say, this seems impossible. What do you do in these situations? When you truly believe what we really believe, when you come to a crossroad, when obedience seems like death, 
When you think of Joshua, what comes to your mind? The battle of Jericho? It's a cruel but very weird scene. We're going to get to it at the end of the message. The 12 spies, the 12 spies were sent to the promised land to kind of scope out, and 10 says, this is crazy. Caleb and Joseph says, no, the God has given to us. We can overtake these city filled with giants. What do you think of? Maybe Joshua at the end of his life after leading his people to conquer the promised land and in his old age he says, choose today whom you will serve but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. What a cool statement. Joshua has witnessed God for the past 40 years. And at the brink of his nation's most important and challenging battle, Joshua encounters someone. And today's passage in the chapter 5 is embedded between two well-known stories of the Old Testament. Israelite crosses the Jordan River on dry ground again. And the fall of Jericho, which begins in chapter 6, which Such a strange way of God delivering the city to his people. But today's passage is not well known, but is embedded right in between these two important and critical stories. And I believe the message is for those who have decided to follow Christ and life of obedience, but faces some form of Jerichos in our lives that is most fortified almost impossible situation to overcome. I divided the message into two parts today. I'm just going to simply unpack the story and figure out what's really its teaching here, and then toward the end apply some few biblical principles. Sounds good? I look so more serious this morning. <laughs> it's the Lord's day. God has redeemed us. We have forgiveness of sins, and we're hearing God's word. Um, I really pray, and I shared with Pastor uh, John and James that uh, by God's grace, I feel like our church is about 15 years ahead of where your congregation is. And because of that, I really believe this is a very important juncture of NCF, especially with a lot of young couples, with young kids, because their time is coming within 5, 10 years Decisions that you have to make regarding your children because we understand the spiritual landscape that is changing in this nation. We will be confronted truly to see, do I really believe what I believe when it begins to affect your children and your very livelihood? And I pray today this message will give grace and strengthening for our future well as our present. So we begin in verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho... It's so pregnant phrase here. When Joshua was by Jericho. So 40 years of witnessing God. Provision in the wilderness with Moses. Experiencing, witnessing deliverance, rebellion. And the new generation has rose now. And Joshua saw it all. Leadership just passed off from Moses to Joshua. Crossing of the Jordan River. That was of God's provision and visibly showing God's um, 
anointing and provision upon his people. Circumcision, there was a covenant reminder commitment at this time. And observing the Passover, reminder of God's grace. Then sin affects everybody, even his own people. We heard about last night. So Joshua is at Jericho. Probably more than likely scoping the city. Maybe studying. We're not sure. Maybe praying. Because he needed needed a well-thought-out military strategy. May I remind you again, it was most fortified, biggest, a city that filled with giants. Israelites has not fought a war like this. They've been in slavery for 400 years. They were delivered. And for 40 years, they kind of wandered in the desert. They had small battles that God gave. But this was a different challenge. Israelite consists of 1.5 and second generation of those who exodused out. All those who are 20 years and older has died off as God has proclaimed. And now, possibly with confidence or maybe with a lot of excitement, Joshua is at the outskirt of Jericho thinking of a military plan to overtake. You know, when I study Old Testament stories, I like to put myself in it. You ever do that? You put yourself in that story? I mean, if I was Joshua, what would I be thinking? Fear? Doubt? You know, you saw Moses' experience as a leader, but it's a different thing when you're the first in command versus second in command. There's so much responsibilities. The outcome of this battle will greatly affect the rest of their battles. Remember, again, it was a land of filled with giants, most fortified city at that time. And when Joshua was by Jericho, he encounters someone, a divine soldier. I'd like to pause here for a thing. As you follow Christ, what is the Jericho that we face? A circumstance, a circumstances that seem so impossible. You know, I counsel some of the uh, married couple at our church. Who, the wives comes to me and said, you know, Pastor Michael, I tried. I tried for the past 15 years. My husband is not leading the family. He's doing his own thing. He's so isolated, so removed from my family. I want to get out of this marriage. I know what the Bible says, but it seems like death. What do you say? I shared last night, and I told Pastor James, if we could not record it and leave it every way, a child dealing with his sexual orientation, that he feels like he's not, he's born as a boy, but he feels like a girl. What do you tell a couple who are godly and serving the Lord of this Jericho that they face? What do you do when God convicts your heart and you have so much payment with student loan and mortgage payments that yet the, the, the word of God says everything belongs to me. Bring the tent to me. What do you do? What is your Jer- Jericho that you are facing today? 
Maybe some of the college students, I've been told that you are intellectually being bullied on your campuses because of your belief in Christ. And what do you do? We have some of our older singles. We have a lot of older singles at our church, particularly ladies. And they're, they're really doubting about God's promise. The scripture says that we can only marry Christians. But when, when, you, when, the, when these ladies, and I agree with them, when they look at the church or around where they are, there are no good guys. There are just no good guys. So they say, you know, what if I just, there's some good guys who are non-Christians, but if I just marry, maybe they can come to faith in Christ. It's a crossroad. It's a Jericho. I know what God's word is saying, but it seems like death. What, we, what do we do? Verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. There was an unexpected encounter. He lifted up his eyes and looked. And the word behold, he was surprised. He wasn't expecting it. The sword was drawn, ready to be engaged in battle or fight. If we understand the teachings of the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 22 and 1 Chronicles chapter 21, both passages, a figure with a drawn sword is one not to be toyed with. It's actually a sign of divine judgment. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Joshua went to him. In the original language, it communicates a combat position. He sees this divine figure with a sword drawn. Remember, he's at the outskirt of Jericho. Who's, he doesn't know who's the enemies or who's on his side. So in, in this ambiguity, Joshua's question is, are you for us or are you for them? It makes sense. Because Jericho was on Joshua's mind. What is the perfect battle plan? How do I accomplish this? Then a strange answer, verse 14. And he said, no. Are you for us or are you for them? No. Actually, NIV says neither. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have Come. Now think about this. I think if we know who this is, we will see, is the incarnate Christ. You would expect him to say, I'm on your side, Joshua. You are my people. This is the promised land that I have, I have foretold and promised to your forefathers. But the answer is no. And he identified himself as, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And he says, my purpose, I have now come. I am here. He simply announces his arrival. Joshua's response, the commander and leader of Israel, verse 14b, and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Pretty interesting. Joshua falls on his face. That's an expression of great reverence and worship. 
He doesn't care about anymore, who no longer about this question that he raised. Whose side are you on? Are you for me or the enemy? Joshua simply says, command me. What does my Lord say to his servant? It was, he's falling on his face, was an outward expression of his heart and his attitude of reverence. The very first encounter when he did not know what this divine soldier was, he acted like a soldier. He drew his sword and raised a question. Are you on my side or are you on the enemy's side? The moment he has this encounter, he changes from being a commander and soldier to a humble servant. Command me. Tell me what I need to do. And the answer that comes in verse 14, and the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy, and Joshua did so. Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place you are standing is holy. That seems pretty familiar. Moses had similar experience of the burning bush. And in that story, in this story, we know that the ground itself was not holy. The because why the ground was holy and asked for his shoes to be removed, you and I know. Any place where God exists and he, the theophany and makes himself known becomes sacred ground. In Revelation chapter 19 verse 10, when When Apostle John encounters an angel, he falls on his face and he worships. But do you remember how the the angel replied? In Revelation chapter 19 verse 10, it says you must not do that, the angel. In the original language, actually it's a rebuke. I am a fellow servant with you and your brother who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Angels responds to John's falling down to worshiping him. He says, don't do this. I am a created creature just like you and I. The only one who is worthy of worship is God. When Joshua fell on his face and began to worship, there was no mentioning of get up. No, don't do that. This must be the pre-incarnate Christ appearing before Joshua as the commander of God's army. And Joshua's response, are you for us or are you for them, is nowhere to be found. Joshua takes off his shoes, expression of worship, and simply says, what does my Lord say to his servant? One of the first biblical principles here is, I think we have a, misunderstanding of Christian faith and who God is. Many times we have this question, are you for us or are you for them? In the church, God, I know we're on the right side. Are you for us or are you for them? Husband and wife, you'd be amazed what these people say to me. I know God is on my side. Please tell my husband that he's wrong. Vice versa. Are you for us or are you for them? The answer that comes is neither. 
the point of this passage is we have to understand the two passages prior to this encounter. Right before this, we are told the circumcision at Gilgal. And right, uh, right before this is the Passover observance. And the point we see in chapter 5, verse 9, And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. In other words, God has removed or rolled away the disobedience that happened of Egypt or the previous generation. And the Passover was a reminder. We are told in chapter 5, verse 12, Manna seized that day of God's continued provision, seized that day. In other words, it's communicating a new page in Israel's experience. From a literary standpoint, the text closes Israel's uh, preparation for the possession of the promise to now to possess the promise of the promised land that God has promised all these years long. And Joshua needed to be reminded the battle is fulfilled, will be fulfilled, and it's God's battle. The pre-incarnate Christ says, I am here as the commander of the Lord. And the reason why you are taking over the promised land is not that you are some good nation. Essentially to fulfill my promise that I gave it to Abraham. Remember that promise? It is not ready to be fulfilled because their sin has not rise to the point. It shows God's patience waiting upon this Gentile nation. And when it's reached its peak, God sends his people to bring about judgment and overtake that promised land. Joshua needed to be reminded that God is wiping out the people in the promised land because of their sin and idolatry. Israel must not assume a holier endowed kind of mentality and attitude. It was just mere God's vessel. But the very first biblical principle that we must be reminded today is God is not present to fight our battles or to help our causes. Jump to our rescue when we get in trouble, although he does. He's not a bottle in a genie that we just rub off, that we kind of neglect him for a while, then when we're in trouble, we kind of now, we open the bottle, we start to beg and rob so he will come and help us, although he does. Instead, the battle is his. And all we ought to be saying is, command me. There's no for us or them. Old Testament commentary is saying, it was not for Joshua to claim God's allegiance for his cause, no matter how right and holy it might be. Rather, the need was for Joshua to acknowledge God's claim over him for God's purpose. Before the most monumental battle, most important battle in Joshua's life, Joshua has to be reminded that it's God's battle. It's his plan. And the second biblical principle is that it is more important to recognize God's position than to know God's plan. Worship before purpose, relationship before task. 
I think this is an area for our second generation Asian American churches to revive. What does it really mean to feel the Lord our God? Not out of terror and horror, but to fear and revere our living God. Ravi Zachariah said, This concept of honor and reverence is an extremely difficult one. He's talking about the Western society where individualistic things are upholding and all these about societal honor and hierarchy is being removed. And he says, where social distinctions are removed, the breakdown of social barrier is a good thing, but there are some distinctions that ought never be erased to the extent that legitimate respect is lost, such as with parents and child, teacher and student, and youth versus old age. When these distinctions are lost, something of life direction has been lost for all of us. The greatest difference, of course, is between God and us, his creation. When that distinction is lost along with reverence, the greatest of all relationship dies. You know, think about this. I'm not a scientist, so I had to do a little research. A light year is measure of distance, not time. It is defined as the distant light travels in one year. Light moves at a velocity of about 186,000 miles each second. So in one year, light travels, and I don't know how to pronounce this, there's six and there's 12 zeros. Milky Way has diameter of about 100,000 light years. Our universe consists of more than 100 billion galaxies. And each galaxy on an average contains more than 100 billion stars, which accounts for more than a million trillion stars. That's one followed with 22 zeros. It is estimated that the number of stars in the universe is greater than the number of grain of sand on all the beaches in the world. And the psalmist says in 149, he determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Isaiah chapter 40 says, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens who created all these, who brings out the starry host of one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. What do you say to a divine being like this? Are you for me or are you for us? Are you for me or are you for them? A proper response is to remove our shoes, fall at our face, and to say, command me. I think there's a misunderstanding of what it means to worship God. We think that we have to come and There is a sense to prepare our hearts and work our our spirit and to come so that we can bring something that is good to God. It is true. But the scripture says that God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. 
in his triune formation with his son and his spirit, there is eternal bliss. But he still mandates us to come and worship him with our hearts and our attitude. He's not a divine being up there who's so a little bit insecure and he needs some kind of praise from his creatures. It's not. He doesn't need us, but he does, does still mandate for us to worship. Why? It is not that because we can give something to God because God wants to give more of himself to us. That is the purpose of worship. Let me try to illustrate this. You know, my wife and I have been married for 27 years. By God's grace, we're empty nesters. I'm so, we're so happy. We're not looking toward, forward toward winter break when my younger daughter will come. Actually, she's studying education, and it's her last year, senior year, second semester, which means she's going to do student teaching in the suburbs, not in our campus. And we realized, my wife and I, we made a mistake. We should have told her to stay on campus and to finish her degree. We have to live with her for about four or five months, interrupting our schedule. No, we really love our daughters. Don't, don't misunderstand. You know, I tell when I counsel the couples, there are, in Genesis chapter 2, there's a three-step that you need to take to make a very happy marriage. There's a leaving part. Priority changes from your parents to your spouse. You know, that causes so much problem. Did you know that in marriage for Korean Americans? Because there are so many mama boys now. They're not able to separate, to lead their own family. And second thing is you become united. That's a permanent thing. In the original language, it's cemented and glued together. It's a permanent thing. You can't separate what God has brought together. And I talk about if you, if you really believe that to be true, then you're committed. You work through issues. It's not about feelings anymore, actually. And the last part of that command, do you remember? You lead, you become one, and you become uh, you united, and you become one. You become one. And that passage, what it says is that you're not no longer just partners. You become one organism, one entity. In other words, everything now is one. Whatever you experience, you ex- the other spouse experiences even more. You just can't get away with it. So I give young couples a quiz. If this biblical truth is true, if you want to be happy, what do you need to do? And the guys usually, oh, I don't know. If the oneness of the biblical marriage is true, if you want to be happy, you make your spouse happy. You become happy. That's the biblical gospel model. But the fallen nature is that all we want to do is they want to get divorced because this spouse is not making me happy. I was envisioning this bliss and happiness, but he's not really fulfilling my desires. And the Bible says that's the wrong understanding of what marriage is. I remember my wife who endures so much for ministry, and I love her to death. I told her, honey, don't get sick. If you get sick and you die and the Lord takes you, I'm going to be miserable for the rest of my life because I put you through so much. But I remember this one day, she was watching some, some Korean drama or something on the Internet, and I was just sitting next to her, and, and she just, oh, no, it was some kind of show. 
like just stupid shows that they do. And she was just laughing. She was just laughing, like unadulterated joy. I was looking at her. Oh, the pure joy that came into my heart. It was the weirdest thing. Seeing her laugh like that, enjoying, gave me just pure joy. I think that's what God desires. We are one with the living Christ. And his joy is now glued together with our joy. God doesn't need anything. He's self-sufficient and he mandates us worship because he wants us to know him more. And when he sees the joy and freedom and forgiveness and the desire to live out the life that God has called, it makes him happy. That is what it means to worship. But I believe we need to recapture the reverence and allness of coming before God. Ravi Zacharias defines sacrilege this way. Sacrilege is a violation of misuse of what is regarded as sacred, taking something that belongs to God and using it profanely. G. Campbell Morgan also comments and says, but sacrilege does not only consist of such profane use. In its worst form, it consists of taking something And giving it to God when it means absolutely nothing to you. We give and we serve and we worship not to be accepted according to scripture. We're already forgiven. There's nothing that we can do to undo that because Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection proves that his payment was so perfect and sufficient. There's nothing that we can do to separate his love for us. But why does, the, why does God mandate to bring, bring our best to the Lord? Because our outward actions reveal our inward attitude. In our heart. I'm sure Pastor John does all this. And when I see Pastor John, uh, sorry to put you on the spot, he's worshiping, right? Man, he claps loud. <laughs> Did you notice? And he's like moving in front and like he has some grooves and he has some moves, right? I want to learn from him. And I'm kind of like old school. Kinda, it's hard to like clap. The reason I share is that I see his genuine love for you guys. I see it in his words and his eyes. Sometimes he gets taxing, but I see the genuineness of his heart. And, and my understanding is he does a lot of personal reach outs and touches. Now I try to do that. We try to invite some people to our house, feed them a good meal and get to know them. Because, you know. But let's think about this. I say, uh, welcome to our house. We, we, we love you so much. You are so precious to us. And then we feed him dinner. And the guests start eating, and then he picks up this meat, and 
there was a bite mark on the meat. Or some vegetables that you see that you know that was like a leftover from last night. How would you feel? Our word says, you're precious to me, I love you, but a piece of meat that I ate last night and I just stored it and kind of served them. I feel like sometimes that's what we do. We have forgotten what it means to revere the Lord. Especially for this young generation. Because what worship is so important is that Joshua chapter 6 cannot take place unless Joshua had to encounter the divine soldier. He had to be reminded it is not about God's plan, but his position first. It's not about the task, but to understand his position in his relationship with the living God. Because in chapter 6, God gives the military strategy to overtake this most fortified, impossible situation. And this is what it means in biblical principle of what it means to fight under the banner of Christ. It's a strange strategy. To me, I think it's really weird. I think it's really nonsense. I think the proper word is foolish. Chapter 6, verse 25, verse 2, verse 5, it says, And the Lord said to Joshua, remember he was scoping, how do I overtake this city? He encounters the living Christ, and God speaks to him. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hands with this king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days, seven days. Priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpet. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. This is great. When you read this story, you're just like, great. But, you know, I told you, I love to put myself in these stories. I'm Joshua. God gave this command. We're command. So now you go up before his people and to say, okay, I got the military plan. God has spoken to me. We're going to walk around the city once per one day. Don't say anything. We're going to do that for six days. On the seventh day, we're going to walk around seven times. And after seven times, we're just going to shout and the walls are going to come down. Can you imagine what the Israelite, the leaders? Dude, I think the heat got to him as he was smoking out Jericho. But they obey. They walk around once. Nothing happens. Walk around twice. I can already envision as the Israelites are walking around the city of Jericho. Dude, what are we doing? 
are you sure? Can we place our lives be- before Joshua? Moses didn't say these kind of things. Dude, what are you doing? Look at those people on the, on the fortified city on the wall. They're laughing at us. They do it. Six days, and on the seventh day, they walk around seven times, and at the end, they shout, and lo and behold, the wall comes crumbling down. An impossible situation. The wall breaks down, and people, just as God has promised, they march straight in. You know what the principle is? To live and to obey Christ's command seems foolish to this world. If we really think about it, the Bible says, you want to lead, serve. You want to be rich, be generous. You really want to love, pray for your enemies. You want to be rich and fulfilled, hunger for thirst for righteousness. It seems foolish. doesn't make sense. But that's God's way. You know why Joshua was stressed? You know what stress is? Stress is a byproduct of us wanting to be sovereign and realizing that we're not. Anytime we worry, it essentially reveals that I'm sovereign, but I realize I don't really have any control. Young couples, I'm very encouraged by you guys, actually. At our church, young couples who have two, three kids, they don't even serve. They think it's their right. I have to watch my kids. I can't come to small group at six because I put my kids to sleep at seven. But I see young couples here serving faithfully. Infants, and they're worshiping, and they're serving. And sometimes young couples feel like, is anything getting done? All I do, that's the comment of the young mothers. All I do is change diapers and feed, and they poop, and I change, they sleep. There's nothing, it's so mundane. There's nothing seems to be getting done. Endure. Such a precious time for the kids. Supplies to singles in college and all the couples, actually. But what are you facing today? That seems like impossible and it's a Jericho in your life. And to obey seems like death. It doesn't make sense. It so seems foolish. Obey. My conclusion, including my church, the reason why our young generation of Asian Americans are not strengthened in our faith like our first generation, they did some crazy things, our parents. They, they put their, their name in the mortgage of the church. You know, I, I know they did some things that it's unbiblical, but some things that they did, like, what were they thinking? You know, the problem with our generation, we're so highly educated, we know the information, so we do all the research. It's going to go this way, pros and cons about God's work. At the end of the day, we're just, we can't move. You know how faith grows? By obeying. They walked around seven days. 
what seems foolish, and they experience the deliverance of God. I think that's why our young generation is weak. Let me try to illustrate. I'm almost done, Pastor John. Sorry, today again I'm losing track of time. Let's say you had to, something you found about in your body that you had to get surgery for. So you researched all you, who's the best doctor, the ratio of success ratio, the cost, and everything. And and you do this, and, and at the end of the day, out of five doctors, you come to this one doctor. How do you know that he's the best doctor? You have to put yourself on that surgery table. You will never know until you actually go through the surgery with all the research that you have done whether he's the best doctor or not. But I feel like our young generation, that's all we do. We research, we plan, we don't, but we can't make that step of faith. And the reason we don't make that step of faith and we don't experience the deliverance of God, it's a repeat. Have you seen people who are generous and giving and really acting by faith? It's because they experience the deliverance of God by obedience. But it does look foolish to the world. What does Jericho really symbolize, though? It symbolizes the most impossible situation. The Bible says that is a relationship between the sinful man and a holy God. The impossible, most fortified, impossible situation. But we are told through scripture what is impossible with man, it is, it is possible with God. Man with a drawn sword was, we believe, is Christ himself. In scripture we are told when a living person encounters the living God, they either die or they fall. Joshua was not cut down. No one lives after seeing God. The sword drawn indicates the battle or of judgment. The sword of the ju- uh, judgment was drawn by God, but, G- but Joshua did not get the sword because we know of the true general on the cross where God's sword came crashing down while we were still sinners. Jesus did not even come to this world with sword in his hand. He humbly and voluntarily went to the cross. And all he could show on his hand were just pierced nails. And when we look to the cross, it is the most foolish thing to this world. A living God being crucified by his creatures. But according to scripture, those who are redeemed in Christ, it is the power of God. What seems foolish, it's powerful. What are you facing today? What is the Jericho in your life? How would you answer this question, NCF? If I called you, you know, I go to Chicago and I got your phone number, I say, Pastor John, I paid your bill. And Pastor John would say, oh, great. What did you pay? 
if my answer is I pay for your electricity bill, he would say, oh, you didn't have to, but thanks. But if I, what if I called you in to say, you know, I can't pay for your car payment? Maybe it's like, oh, great. What if I said I paid for your student loan, your medical student loan? You would say, wow, this is an amazing guy. Thank you. But what if it's something that it was impossible to pay? There lies the truth of the cross. What are you facing today? Obey. It seems foolish, but the experience of God's deliverance. I'd like to conclude the message today. Joshua encountered the divine soldier at a very critical juncture of his life. And he had to be reminded that it's not about the task. His position before the Lord was more important. The battle was his. And when he truly worshipped and realized who he was, he was able to obey this foolish command and experience the deliverance of God. We're told in Genesis 6 that God gives Noah a very detailed instruction about the ark. What type of wood, the dimension of the ark, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof certain way and finish the ark within 18 inches of the top. Such a detail of the ark. Why can't he just build it and have animals go in? It's so specific. But are two things that is crucial, crucial to a boat that was not given. The rudder and the sail. The most important thing, how you navigate and the power of the boat to go, it was not given. God said, just go in. And I will take you wherever you need to go. That's some time of God's leading upon our lives. And you know, and I know the ark ultimately represents Christ. The judgment coming, but the ark saving and protecting. Do you know where is the safest place in the world? You know, they have magazines like, so when you fly, they have like most safest place to live. I don't remember where, where the, some of them are. I don't, I don't think it's New York or Chicago. But we think the safest place to live in the world is a place where low crime rate or better neighborhood or even good school district or how much money I have in my bank account. The Bible states the safest place in the world is that to be the very center of God's will. And I pray that this church will remain in it to endure and persevere. What seems foolish to this world is a power of God in our lives. What are you facing this morning? Obey. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your church here at NCF. Father, we thank you for the amazing work that you have been doing and you are still continuing to do. 
Father, we thank you for this young congregation and generation who are in love with you and to participate in the kingdom work. But as you and I know, and you know every needs and deeds and what they're experiencing at this time, whatever Jericho they're facing. Father, I pray that by seeing you, out of joy that they would obey and through it they would experience your bigness your greatness even in Jesus name we pray amen thank you pastor michael uh, we're not